Hello and welcome to this uh, emergency episode of Battling with Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Tennant. Now, normally we explore ideas and concepts around teams, teamwork, leaders, leadership and all things in between. Uh, you've heard us do this before. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders and businesses tick. Uh, but I'm afraid today, as I've implied and as the, the, the title of the podcast indicate, this is an emergency podcast. And I think it's an emergency for a couple of reasons, but probably the principal one is um, I think we might be nerds beyond all ability to be saved, Gareth. The context is this. Last night, we had a party at our house and my wife loves dancing. And Gareth obviously couldn't come to the party because he's still in Canada. And after inquiring politely how the party was, I explained it was great. Lovely. We had lots of friends over, lots of sort of music in the background, good fun, good food, good to drink, but nobody danced. And as I conferred this to Gareth, because I know he would have danced, he then immediately brought that back to the topic of battling with business. And what did you say, Gareth? I said we should do a podcast around this because that is all about the lack of followership. And then I went on to talk about how getting people to dance at a party uh, could be viewed as a leadership challenge. But actually, the the key to doing something like dancing, which is a social activity, is more of a followership challenge than it is a leadership challenge. Because it's very easy to get up on the dance floor and start dancing and hope that everybody else is going to follow you. And the person who does that is clearly the, the leader in the particular context of getting people to dance. And of course, my definition of leadership is getting people to do things you want them you want them to do. So that would fit that definition quite well. But of course, the person who's dancing on their own in the dance floor is either an inspirational leader or a lunatic. And the thing that decides that isn't the leader themselves. It's whether somebody wants to be the first follower. So it's really easy for people to watch somebody get up and go, oh, he's brave or she's brave, and then to sit there and watch. And you watch one person on their own. If somebody else gets up, there's a little bit of social proof. And once and you see more than one person doing it, suddenly the whole dynamic changes. And rather than this being a case of watching one slightly drunk lunatic this becomes oh this is this is a fun activity and whether that's a conscious decision or not is kind of irrelevant that's what drives the next people to get up and you say oh well you know there's more than one person dancing this is a dance now and before you know it and we've all been in these social situations where we are perhaps not brave enough or drunk enough to be the first person on the dance floor but once there's people dancing Suddenly, we all want to join in. And you think about the job of a DJ at a wedding, that that crucial job is how do you get the first people to start dancing? And, and then what you absolutely don't want to do as a DJ is let that dance floor kind of melt away because then you're back to that first problem of having to convince people to be the first person to dance. 
Now, I think this episode is is sort of a bonus episode in two ways. The first thing is I was, the, the reason why we, we were planning to talk about something else different today. But I said, I'm going to have to sit down with my wife and we're going to have to plan for how we change our strategy to get people to dance. So hopefully the first piece of value for this podcast episode is the next time you have a party, we're going to talk about the strategies for getting people to dance. So that hopefully will help you. Actually, it's more about helping me. But of course, as you can imagine, the second thing is this concept of followership and how do you think about it as a leader and how do you understand the mechanics of getting a group of people to do things is of course not just about a party it is about doing things at work and apologies i'm gonna i'm gonna do a very bad job of retelling a story i heard another podcast so there is a a place called the center for army leadership which is a part of the british army and uh, they have a podcast uh, and i'd recommend you go listen to it it's serving members of the British Army talking about different aspects of leadership. And one of those aspects was an officer talking about a particularly difficult time he had. And I apologize, I can't remember whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq. Chris, before we move on, just to, to make it absolutely clear for our listeners, because because I agree, it's a very, very good podcast. The Army Leadership Podcast is actually called The Human Advantage. Oh, Thank you. Thank you for that qualification. You can tell I I I did stay up quite late at the party last night. So Gareth is carrying me a little bit today. But in that particular podcast, they talked about the fact that there was they were on patrol, a member of the patrol. Again, I'm going to get this wrong. We weren't preparing for this today. Stepped on an IED, was ki- either killed or very seriously injured. And the officer had to make a decision did they cut short the patrol or did they carry on and he decided to carry on that was the right thing to do and in an act of followership he talked about it was either a corporal or a lance corporal stepped forward and said i will be the point person on patrol and the moment that happened the rest of the group and the team immediately switched away from the we have lost or potentially lost a member of our team into this is what we have to do. So, you know, the the dance floor is the stupid example, but understanding how and why someone might step forward in a difficult situation and say, I will bear that responsibility and I will take the lead. In that case, everyone then said we will follow. And what they pointed out in that particular podcast was, that was an incredible act of leadership from a very junior member of a team. And again, we I, I sometimes worry that we talk about very dramatic times in the military, but of course in civilian world, in business, this is just as important, perhaps often even more so, because what we do is we rely on our teams to take that initiative to step forward. And so it's funny, what started as a as, as me joking with Gareth about what happened last night at the party, this followership seems really interesting. So let, let's go back, Gareth. Uh, let, let's, let's sort of just slow down and retell that, what followership is and how we think about followership. Both those examples, I think, are, are very visceral examples of first followership. And what we mean by first followership is when a leader in whatever context, officer leading a patrol in Afghanistan, somebody deciding they're going to get the party started and gets on the dance floor. When a leader does something, 
where they're trying to get the rest of the group to to follow them, there is team dynamics and psychology at play. And one of the crucial aspects of that is to have social proof. So one of the things that we are as a species evolved to do is to work collaboratively. We are not the, the successful species we are because we've got big brains. And we're not successful species we are because we're stronger and faster than other species, because we, we know we're not. Um, but what we are is socially collaborative. And the thing that we have that other species don't have, including social group species, things like you know groups of meerkats or colonies of ants or whatever, is the ability to tell stories and the ability to pass that group cohesion, those group ideas, those group dynamics on from generation to generation as our collective initiative, our collective education and um, and capability you know, evolves over time. That means as a species, we're very, very susceptible to making sure we conform to the group around us. And that has some really positive aspects. And it has some quite negative aspects. And we've touched on these in the past, but it means that we are by default a little bit xenophobic. We are by default trying to fit into the group around us and therefore other groups, other people that seem different are are potentially a, a risk, are potentially a threat. And so what we need to try and do and what we do as a species quite well often is build relationships between groups. The thing that happens is, is conformity and social cohesion. And that means you have to have social proof before people accept good ideas, even if the idea seems good on the surface. And, and there are lots of social psychological sort of experiments in academia around this, where people will actively change their answer to a objectively asked question with an objectively correct answer like a mathematical answer based on the the fact that people around them seem to collectively be looking at a different answer so there's there's a, a psychological experiment where they talk about lines being of the same length and they show three lines in in various different positions and then they ask the participants to name which two lines are the same length and it's obvious as an individual, everybody gets it right. I know line A and C are the same length and line B is the outline. But when you start to plant people in the audience, and these are stooges planted by the people running the experiment, when they give the wrong answer, when more than one person does that, when three or four people start to do it, what you see is people will change their answers. And they'll do that both consciously, so they will give the wrong answer so that they don't they mentally understand this is not the answer they would give but in many cases they fear that they have missed something and therefore yes. they're and yeah and they and sometimes it's just a, sometimes it's a subconscious thing as well and so they they will just default to well this is the answer that everybody's giving and therefore i i must yeah like you say i must be wrong and and then they they actually then convince themselves that this is the right answer so when we talk about the first follower, the second person onto the dance floor, or the Lance Corporal that recognises the difficulty the officer has 
in taking the team forward and so they step forward and say, I'm with you, boss. Let me be the lead barmer man, which is the person who goes to the metal detection at the front of the patrol. They are doing a small act of leadership to reinforce that larger act of leadership. So that second person that gets up on the dance floor, whether they're fueled by a desire to support that first person or whether they're fueled by half a bottle of Lambrini, doesn't really matter. If uh, that, that act of reinforcing, validating that first person's decision, that first person's guidance, creates a different social dynamic. And you see this across groups. And this is how things go viral. This is how groups become very, very strongly engaged around particular subjects that they, perhaps as individuals, wouldn't be particularly engaged in. So we, we, we can go in all sorts of directions around this, but I, I want to sort of simplify a little bit. While this is a severe reduction of this whole conversation, in, in the world of business, one of the symptoms of this challenge is groupthink. We all think this is a great idea because we're all a team. We all like each other. Therefore, if we think it's a good, we, we're self-reinforcing without that introspection. And I, I, I think there's a couple more things I want to say about this, which is this is not because people are stupid. This is about we as human beings are hardwired to do this. So this idea of social cohesion, of wanting to be part of a group is one of the most fundamental tenets of humanity that says our ability to survive is predicated on this ability to be part of a team because I know hardwired in my genetics, being part of a team means I'm more likely to survive than otherwise. Now, just there's, you you talked about some of the research that's been done. Um, a, A while ago, I heard about some research which I thought was fascinating. And the research went like this. It said, we think that in politics today, there is tribalism. People will say, I agree with my particular political party, even when that, as you said earlier, either demonstrably that's not what you believe or it's unlikely or the reasons you might not. So this, this research team said, we want to understand at what point an individual starts to change their behavior based on tribalism. And they assumed that the process to join a tribe would take time or need careful constructs. So for example, a religious group. Well, I've been, my family has been in this religious group for all my life. So many years, perhaps that's it. Or um, you know, a political party that I support or my family supports. They That was their assumption. And what they did was they started with what was effectively a control experiment. This is crazy. Get, I, I, I Perhaps in some show notes, we'll go away and point to the research here. But they said, what we're going to do is we're going to just figure out these experiments. It was almost as a test to, to create a good experiment. And they said, we are going to get, I can't remember what it was. It was either coins in a jar or or Smarties or something. And what we would literally do is we would ask the candidates, there was a number of candidates, are there an odd or even number of Smarties in the jar? Demonstrably, there was no way they could know. It was a guess. And then once they answered, they said, congratulations, you are now part of the odd Smarty team or the even Smarty team. So literally their 
you would argue there can be no tribalism. There is nothing linking these people beyond an almost random thing. And then they ran the first test. And what they wanted to understand was, in terms of your team versus the other team, how far would you be willing to go? And so they said, we will either give you £10 or if you are willing to share the same amount of money with the team, we'll give you, I think it was £15 or whatever, but more. In other words, the statement fundamentally went down to if you are willing to share with the other side, you will benefit more. And to their enormous surprise, consistently, they discovered that when people were even in this tenuous tribe of odds or evens, they would rather see the other team disadvantaged than them having a more successful team. Now, what, why am I saying this idea of teams and tribalism is astoundingly powerful? So I think yes. we're going to talk about a couple of topics which I suspect are very highly charged and highly emotionally, you would say these are the only things where we might have this behavior. Actually, what the, the science is beginning to suggest is this is so hardwired. Actually, you hardly need any excuse for tribalism. And we start to get into this world where either A, we agree with things that we might not normally agree with, or we don't question groupthink, or even, which is a different topic, and we won't necessarily follow this today, which is I want to see my team prosper at the expense of another team. And that seems very, very familiar in terms of our world as well. So I'm, I'm straight away reminded of two very famous psychological experiments in behavioral science, which I'm sure our listeners will be familiar with or at least heard of. And one is the Stanford prison experiment, where in very similar circumstances to your counting marbles in a jar, there was a random way of breaking the participants into two groups. No reason why they should form any kind of social cohesion. They are literally randomly assigned to the red blue, red group or the blue group. And then they're told that one group is going to be the prisoners and one group is going to be the prison guards. Now, there's no crimes being committed. There's no reason why the prisoner's group should be seen as lesser than the prison guard group other than the automatic authority that one group has over the other and what was what made the experiment famous is that it took less than 72 hours before the prison guards got to a point where they were physically abusing the prisoners and they they were starting to execute their power over them in a way that meant that the, the people running the experiment actually had to bring it to a close. Yeah. And you can see this in how bullying starts to happen in, in schools. You can see this in uh, how tribalism creates animosity between different groups. And it can, like you say, it's an incredibly powerful thing that we are hardwired to feel safer when we are part of a team. Now, that's really, really useful for us because in an organisation, we can reinforce people's feeling of security, feeling of being part of that team through things like group rituals, through things like uniforms, through shared experiences. And we can really start to build 
teamwork and we can really start to build a sense of belonging which is a very very powerful way of utilizing people's individual energy skills talents passions for the good of the organization which straight away as a as a leader you can start to see how you can really positively utilize these very very powerful human dynamics but also equally clearly is how this can create really really negative consequences and that's where the the leadership challenge comes with balancing these the very very base almost primeval sort of system one thinking dynamic so that we we create positive aspects of teamwork without starting to create the negative aspects of tribalism without reinforcing things like groupthink because as soon as you get to you know in the in the last episode we were talking about VUCA and I think we finished the episode talking about how important it is to have a diverse range of views to to build flexibility into our organization so we can adapt to an external environment well if you reinforce those internal dynamics too much you you end up with the ability to ignore everybody else because they're not in the team and that's a really dangerous thing I think, I mean, we, we joked at the beginning this was about a party, but I think actually maybe a better way of describing that this particular episode is about lots of current affairs. Because I think one of the other things that, that you're talking about there is the challenge of a group's culture. And we've never talked about it before in those terms about the challenge of the culture. But um, this week in the newspaper... Um, there were articles about how female surgeons were being abused even while they were working in surgery. And what I'm very pleased to say that that the vast majority of people that responded to this said that in this day and age, that is utterly unacceptable. That is not what we do anymore. These we are all equal men and women. We deserve the right to be safe and our et cetera, et cetera. But what was astounding to me, and I think it actually it was surprising to a lot of people, was a retired male surgeon saying, Well, maybe good grades aren't good enough if women want to be surgeons because they are going to have to deal with harder things. Almost this is what happens in our group. And somehow for you to question that challenges your position in our group. So I think the really interesting thing there is you can have negative things that happen within a group and alcohol consumption, particularly in the military, has often been one of those things where it's what we do. We have done it for many hundreds of years. And if someone abuses it or bad things happen, people say, yes, I agree that was a bad thing. But I'm certainly not going to say that actually that's a bad part of our culture. So this idea yeah. of, of, of and, and group thing is the wrong word, but I'm going to hang it on this, which is we, we create these teams and these cultures within teams, which at times potentially become so powerful 
it prevents you guarding against bad things happen and the culture going wrong. And, you know, I'm sure I suspect people, there are some people going, yeah, I know what you mean. And I agree. And there are others saying, no, no, I'm in lots of teams. I'm in the local rotary club and it's all good there. Um, this power of saying no in a team and saying that is not acceptable is very, very difficult to shake. And it can be as simple as, you're in a room, you're in a meeting, and we say, how are we going to solve this problem? And someone says, we're going to solve it this way. And two people in the audience saying, I don't think that's the right way to solve it, but I can't, in inverted commas, go against the team. It we, we've talked about it yeah. before, but I think there is team dynamics. There is the yeah. person who says, this is something I've come across a lot, actually, and it's really tricky, which is the person who wants to communicate to a senior leader I think something catastrophic is happening. And there is a risk that people will say, well, Bob always moans or Janet is always moaning because what we're doing is almost protecting the system and saying, how could they be right by saying we're so wrong? So yeah. I, I think, and I think that- we're, we're back to the power of that first follower, which is the person that stands up and says, I agree with, what the boss has just said has set the the precedent of we don't disagree. And that's the, I agree with the person on the dance floor, I'm going to dance too. And it creates that group um, social proof. The first person that stands up and says, I understand what you're saying, boss, but I don't think in this situation that's actually correct. Or I'm not sure you're fully aware of all the facts or this is the way we've always done it, but that creates a problem for this particular subgroup or, or whatever it is, suddenly creates a, we're not all following, you know, I there isn't now this social proof. And it's an incredibly powerful thing. And it takes either, and actually it's a combination of the two, a very, very good culture that is willing to listen and accept challenge or incredibly courageous people who feel strongly that their particular view, their particular argument is worth going against the organisation. And more often than not, we don't hit that threshold. So unless we're very, very passionate about a particular cause, more often than not, we will subconsciously or consciously, but keep it to ourselves, say, I don't actually agree, but it's not worth me expending my, you know, political capital with yeah. my relationship with the boss to, to question this. And this is something that the Army Leadership Centre, bring it back to them, um, but but the military as a whole has been working really hard on over the last few years, is recognising that we are an organisation that is particularly susceptible to groupthink because we build on those teamwork dynamics by having uniforms, by having explicit ranks, by having a disciplined culture that means we have to obey orders. And so we've been working really, really hard on a concept called loyal dissent, which is to reinforce positively and routinely the fact that leaders need to be challenged and that there's a difference between disobeying an order and questioning the logic behind an order. And of course, circumstance is going to dictate this, but 
in most situations, and in both the civilian world and the military world, we're not talking about critical life and death decisions in the moment. We might be, in which case, actually just doing what you're told might be the right answer. But more often than not, the, we're talking about decisions that are project management, they're slower burn. I think there's a particularly important example, which is around protecting your team members. You know, the, the, the person, and I'm very lucky, I haven't had this in my team, and if ever I were to, I would hope I would deal with this quickly and very definitively. But the, you know, the, the men and women in a pub, in a social situation, and either the, 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 the girl or the boy that starts to sort of go further than is appropriate. So I, I, while it's easy to say, I know this isn't typically as dramatic in the civilian world, I suspect the most common version of that is upholding the standards about what is acceptable. Before you move on, there's a really important aspect to that. So there was an Australian general, and I can't remember his name. Um, so I, I will look it up in the break and because it's important that we know who it comes from. But this was a, an Australian general talking about changing the culture within the Australian military. But I think the quote has been adopted by militaries across the Western world. And it's an incredibly important one. And it effectively says the standards you walk past are the standards that you accept. And that refers to everything from the output of products or the output of work yeah. that people do all the way through to their behaviours. And if we can create cultures that absolutely believe in the, the collective standards, the collective vision and the collective principles of the organization what is fair what is acceptable what is morally okay and if if we can agree on those things they're not bullet points you know stuck to a wall but they're actually believed values then we should get everybody in that organization to to live up to and call out when those values aren't being met so the standards you walk past on the standards you accept so if you're in a pub and somebody starts to influence by alcohol or, or or not but starts to cross that line they might not have crossed that line but they might be getting close to it having the confidence having the courage to say this is not acceptable or you might want to think about your behavior and there, obviously there are different ways of dealing with these things prevents that line ever being crossed but it's the small things and it builds and it compounds and and when we talk about group dynamics and group cultures it's the small things that have to change to change the whole culture and that's why changing culture is so so difficult but if we can all collectively discuss and understand where we sit in those group values and we all can start to understand why they're important, then we can all collectively start to be the first followers to say, we've been told or we've had these discussions, we know what the rules are, this is not acceptable. In those scenarios, how do you get your team to behave in that way? I think there are two pieces. So, so for me, I think... Um, we talk about leadership and, and on this podcast, particularly, you know, we compare and contrast 
the civilian world with military world kind of examples. And when we talk about decisions, we quite often talk about really difficult decisions under fire or taking casualties or in the business world, firing people or making long-term decisions about money or understanding the complex environment and all these things that are really important. But ultimately, it starts with very small decisions about behaviours. Some of the hardest leadership decisions I've had to make, actually, the consequence and the context has been very, very, very simple. So it's the calling out somebody because they're driving too fast. As a, as a senior officer in a, in a troop or a platoon who's about to lead in a, you know, a patrol or lead an assault, you're asking people to do very difficult things, but it's actually very clear why. As the senior officer in the back of a vehicle, telling a driver to slow down can feel a lot more uncomfortable. But if you do that, you're creating that social proof that you are not approving of this behaviour. And it, in the military, there's things like you know, calling people out for not saluting, which seems very, very minor. It seems almost petty. People feel uncomfortable doing it, but we've set standards. We have these standards for a reason. and We're not going to talk about why saluting is good or bad, but they're tiny little rules. But if you don't enforce them, then don't have them at all. And it's the calling somebody out in the pub for, I don't know, referring to women as chicks for example, or, or birds or, you know, whatever other sort of misogynistic cliches you want to you bring up. It's a passing comment. There might not even be any females in the group at the time. And so it's very, very easy to let these things go. But very quickly, that becomes the social norm. Exactly. The first follow-up. Well, you're allowed to say these words, whether they're it, whether they're um, serious or not, but then they build up and build up. There, yeah. there were two. There were two parts to this. But and and by the way, th- this is sort of going down a little bit more of a moral path. I personally struggle with this on a day to day basis. You know, you and I think this is true for everyone. Which is that simple statement, which in itself is harmless or a joke. When when does it get to be the bit where you say stop? Because this is important that we don't do this. Yeah. At what point are you the the spoiled sport that isn't having fun? So I, I I'm I do think actually a lot about this on a day to day basis. I have a team with men and women in that particular case. I think a lot, but there are two things how I think about this, which I think is really important. Rather than simply saying people should speak up, because I agree, but how do you? How do you get people to speak up? I I think there's a really important aspect to this. Well, there's two points. One is we're we're talking about changing behaviours. So the first thing is if somebody says something like, I don't know, in passing conversation, I was talking to some some birds, you know, it's it's quite an anachronistic example now because people don't tend to do it. But what you don't do is jump on them and say, that's unacceptable. What you do is explain why it's not appropriate and and you do it in a way that is informing and educational rather than punishing and we've got to not demonize people because for a long time these have been accepted either implicitly or explicitly these have been accepted behaviors so the first thing you can't do is suddenly say this is no longer acceptable and if you do it again you're going to be punished what you can say is 
are you aware that your behavior makes other people feel uncomfortable? The second really important point to this is everybody needs to do it because the last thing we need is for the only people to be calling it out are the people that are left feeling uncomfortable. And so this is why, and it took somebody, and I have to, I have to honestly front up to this, I had to have this explained to me. But this is why it's important that we have gender pronouns in our signature blocks on emails. And for, for a long time, my view was, well, you know, what's that got to do with anything? Like, I, I absolutely accept people for who they are, so why do we need to even have that there? And the reason is the people that are left feeling uncomfortable are the people who don't have standard gender pronouns and therefore, every time somebody gets it wrong, they're the people left having to explain it. And these are people who are already facing greater challenges in the social environment of the work environment or society or whatever than the rest of us. And therefore, we're leaving it to them to have to have those uncomfortable conversations. Whereas if the rest of us do it as well, and it becomes the norm, you're taking the burden away from them. And it's the same way that, you know, we want our workplaces to be fully inclusive and we want them to be productive places where people feel confident and able to do their best and be their best. And this is not a pink and fluffy kind of thing, top-down thing. This is about you know, generating new ideas. It's about creating that ability to have loyal dissent and challenge views. Optimize so the first teams to come up with the best answer. Absolutely. And people have to feel comfortable. And so the last thing you want, if you're trying to tackle a slightly misogynistic culture, and I'm, I'm talking about you know, most, most workplaces, you know, we're talking about really, really micro act actions that aren't really on their own in isolation that important, but collectively make people feel uncomfortable. The last thing you want, let's say we're trying to tackle misogyny, is only ever the women to speak up. Well, I'm, I'm going to change the I'm going to change the lens here for a second. I, of course, 100%. I agree. It would be very easy for people to say I'm not a misogynist. My organisation doesn't engage in all of that kind of things. Let me let me put it into my language. We let bugs get through. We yeah. say, you know what? That's okay. You know, I can't get them all. It's okay. This, this is, in fact, I would argue in many ways, we've made lots of progress in some of these sort of equality. Actually, the one that's really killing the organizations is it's okay for this not to be high quality. It's okay that we didn't respond to our colleagues in a reasonable time because, you know, I was a bit busy. I think yeah. it's about th these micro things. It's about coming back. So the two things that I wanted to talk about, which was fundamentally, it's almost what you've said, but from a different angle. So the first thing is, how do you engender this kind of positive, challenging culture? The first thing is to sit down with your team and engage with them on the importance. Because at the end of the day, if this is about Chris cares about bugs and none of the rest of us do, I might as well not talk about it. I need to sit down with everyone and say, whether it's misogyny in the workplace, whether it's quality. Guys, I I care about this. Do you care about this? Let's let's talk about why this actually affects us 
as a group, even if it doesn't seem to affect you personally. I think engaging with people and having this conversation, whether it's the pronoun conversation, whether it's, you know, patting someone on the bum at a party is not cool. Let's talk about that. Let's let's as a group set our standards, you know, yes. if you yeah. said the group is powerful, then as a group, let's talk about what we expect. So the first one is about engagement with the team rather than Chris believes all these things. Yeah. And, and, and like, like, like we've said before, these things are, they're deeply complex, they're nuanced. And the answer is not a top down, this is now how we behave. Because there is always nuance. There is always, and and we've we've said this before. This is where you know, genuine mistakes shouldn't be punished. Yeah. Genuine mistakes should be explored and learned from. And if you punish mistakes, people don't own up to them. So I have not emailed people back because I've forgotten about it. I've lost their emails. I've you know that happens. We make mistakes. We things happen and that's okay as long as it's not a trend as long as because if it's a trend i'm either making lots of mistakes in which case there's a reason am i overloaded am i disorganized and need extra support or new new tactics of how i deal with my emails or whatever it is or do i just need to have that conversation about why it's important actually not receiving a response is you know quite important but it might not be from my perspective and so somebody needs to have that conversation and then as soon as the light bulb goes on i'll change my behavior and this i'm really glad you've you've moved the conversation away from diversity and inclusion because this can quite often feel very you know lectury and very kind of this is i think and this is this is more than that this is about behaviors for creating better outcomes as teams there was a second thing that I wanted to cover as well. And I think we underestimate that. So you, you, you talked about people speaking up. So in the case of bugs, which is one of my, you know, I deal with, I've dealt with all my career, someone standing up and saying, we are not delivering quality early enough. And therefore we should all be unhappy. There are this many bugs and we should talk about fixing it. So speaking up is good, but here's the rub. For many people, they have never been given the skills to communicate effectively. For those of you who've got kids, let's just give you a perfect thought experiment. Your child says, uh, I'm going to start sticking their finger or a stick in an electric bar fire. And you say, stop it. And the child says, hmm, you're telling me to stop it, but this is interesting. I quite like this. And you say, stop it. And all of a sudden they burnt the hand. Well, hang on. I, I, I did my bit as a parent. I told them not to do it. I spoke up. I, I did the right thing, right? No, I actually didn't do a very good job there because actually the better job would say, okay, stop. Let's talk about this. That is very, very hot. The reason why I think you should stop now, I mean, I'm, I'm making it more of a thing. I generally be shouting at the kids. <laughs> The reason why I don't want you to do that is there is a very high chance you are going to burn yourself. And by the way, let's get a marshmallow 
This is your finger and you stick your marshmallow against the bar fire and it melts and goes black and smells bad. That's why I don't want you to put your finger. Okay, thank you. Now, I know that's a really ridiculous example where you talk about kids, but this ability to communicate effectively, I have seen this too many times in business where someone says something bad is happening. We must change it. And everyone looks at them and says, uh? and they say it again. And no one listens. And at this point, yeah. they're saying it with real passion. And then people go, oh, Bob's always a naysayer. Oh, and, and actually, the, the, pro, the challenge here is, has anyone sat down with Bob and said, okay, when you see something wrong, yeah, it, the first step is to say what's wrong. But the next step is to say, let I, I'm going to tell you what the downstream impact is and why we might all care. So the second part of this is, does the team... Does the organization have the skills and the practice to communicate effectively? People very rarely think about that. And you get people who are frustrated. I told you this would go wrong and you didn't listen to me. We're, we're also, you know, we're back to the first followership principle. What we need is not only teams that communicate, but teams that understand, recognize and have experienced the fact that when somebody raises a problem, when somebody else says that is absolutely a problem, we should really listen to Bob, the the whole dynamic of that group shifts. So there will always be people who have differences of opinion who say this is a problem. What we need to do is, is recognise whether it is or isn't and have that first followership to say, I agree with that whether the rest of the group has has identified that or not, because it's it's that second person onto the dance floor to say, I'm on Bob's team. Bob Bob's put himself out there to look like a bit of an idiot on the dance floor, but do you know what? He's going to have a better night than the rest of us if we sit here and watch. We need to take a quick break now. Join us after the break. started with dancing and um, our inability to get people onto the dance floor. We moved through followership, how teams come together and behave as a team and how there's really positive aspects of that. But there is also the danger of that group think. Um, and one of the things I know that you, you were talking about before the break, which I thought was really good was the, the, the quote, the standards you walk by are the standards you accept. Uh, Gareth, I know you 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 want you were very keen to make sure we properly attributed that. So do you want to do you want to share who that was said by? Yeah, so I've looked it up during the break. It was Lieutenant General David Morrison, who was chief of the army, and that's the Australian Army. And that was in a speech he was giving in relation to inappropriate and unacceptable sexual behaviour in uh, the Australian Army, and recognising that this was not some bad individuals although, of course, they were, but this was part of a wider cultural problem. Before the break, we, we went down that rabbit hole of you know, unacceptable behaviour, but you, I think, helpfully dragged us back into this is not about just changing people's individual behaviours around misogyny or 
inappropriate kind of views around diversity and inclusion. But this is a much wider, wider problem about group dynamics and allowing general behaviours that undermine what we're trying to achieve with an organisation. And, and you used the point about you know being late in answering emails, I, and I thought that really helpfully refocused us throughout all of our conversations um we, we you can tell that we do come back to it we are passionate about the moral aspect of leadership but actually just everyone needs to remember we also passionately believe that this is a pattern which is repeated throughout business and 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 whether you care for the morality that we we follow or not we fundamentally do it not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it leads to the best outcomes. So let's let's go for the 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 full contentious conversation. And so where we finished at the just before the break was about. And I, by the way, I'm not going to necessarily talk about what people should do, but I think it's really interesting to reflect on what goes on. So let's let's talk a little bit about Brexit before we start. I and Gareth, and we we had a very quick conversation before we started recording. This is not about us talking about the rights or wrongs of Brexit. To this is not a political podcast. This is not a political podcast. Um, I, I, in fact, I, I'll even tell you, I, I voted Remain, but genuinely, hopefully what you'll hear our conversation is, that actually isn't relevant. What's really relevant to us is this is a very emotional topic like many topics in the workplace are. And it is one where a decision was taken a number of years ago. And what seems to be the case is that more and more people at the very least are questioning that decision. And I think that's a really fascinating idea of how we think about these things. And that decision we made two years ago, let's put it in, in business terms, that strategy we came up with two years ago that we were all bought into two years down the line, how do you go back and say, was that the right strategy? Or did we have incomplete information? Or actually, is it the wrong strategy now? It was right then, but it's wrong now. And and I've, I, it's been really, really interesting. And, and this is my perception, that people were extraordinarily passionate on either side about the Brexit decision. Yeah. It feels to me that that for many that for many people there were different reasons whichever way they voted and in fact actually potentially one of the challenges of brexit was everyone was allowed to imprint th their own belief about what the vote did or did not mean but it's interesting because i get the sense that people are reevaluating so I, I think before before we get into that it's it, it's worth linking this to what we were talking about in terms of first followership and, and then the the group dynamic aspects of that, because I think you're right. People imprinted their own impression of what they thought it meant. Um, but I also think there was a huge amount of that powerful dynamic of social cohesion. So we all know there were very, very few people outside of the political sphere and the academic sphere that were particularly passionate about the European Union prior to the announcement of the referendum. Now, there, there is a significantly higher number of people who get very, very passionate about this subject, hence why it's a contentious subject. And the reason for that 
is the same reason as that social experiment I talked about with the the lines and people saying, well, two or three people in the audience around me have said A and C. I'm I'm pretty sure it's A and B, but now I'm not for sure. Now I'm questioning my own judgment. I'm going to go with A and C because that's what everybody else has said. And even if we're all wrong, at least we're wrong together. And and it, it, again, the, the Stanford Prison experiment as well, you know, once you've decided you're in a group, once you are in the leave group or the remain group, and this is one of the massive problems with polarisation of an argument, is it, it becomes less about the nuance of the discussion about the pros and cons of the European Union. And I want to be very, very clear here. I voted remain along with you. But I don't think this is a black and white, right and wrong issue. I think there are lots and lots of complexities, lots of things that we didn't necessarily understand, lots of things that were bent out of shape, lots of misinformation, all of that kind of stuff. But effectively, what we need is that discussion about why people felt unhappy about our relationship with the EU, why people felt that it would be detrimental to leave, why people, rather than the if you're in that camp, you must be one of these people. And what we've seen is, is, is almost that Lord of the Flies, Amazon, you know, Swallows and Amazons or prison guards, prisoners, Stanford prison experiment, where this becomes um, about judging an entire team rather than the nuance of the difficult, complex thing that we're discussing. And you could use, you don't have to use Brexit, you could use US politics where, you know, people are now starting to conflate really different complex issues like uh, the pro-choice, pro-life versus pro-gun, anti-gun conversation in, in US politics. And what, what you see is conflations and you see cognitive dissonance. So when we're talking about these things, we're, I, I think in this episode, trying to understand more about the group dynamics and behaviours than we are the the nuances of the particular issue at hand. But, and it's, I mean, t- tying those two things together. So I I think that's very true that if, if you talk about, I said you should never talk about politics and religion. Um, if you talk about politics, the, the, the polarization, which as we have talked about is almost the nature of how this stuff goes, actually doesn't serve either group it's almost that idea of i will accept less money if my if the other team are disadvantaged further and it's that lack of nuance which i think is really interesting so let's well let's let's move on just before we finish to okay if we're gonna if we're gonna do if we're gonna get all the contentious topics out in one episode let's do that which is um, the decision to go to war in Iraq, and again, this is not about litigating that decision per se. You are poking the bear today. Well, it's what what I think is really interesting about it is if we don't understand the mechanics for how we make these decisions and how we can revisit and be more nuanced, we are doomed to failure. And I think that the, the one of the things about Iraq that perhaps is more useful to us is there's a little bit more distance. And I, I, it just feels like there's a little less emotion generally about it rather than Brexit, where there is still a high degree of emotion. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have come to a place now where I am 
far less confident about my viewpoints about the war in Iraq. And I guess, and, and maybe this is a good question for us to finish on, to, to reflect on, which is, how do we make sure we make better decisions when we are members of the teams? So here, here's where I kind of personally land. Saddam Hussein was not a good person and people were suffering because of what he did. And so therefore, at a ridiculously simplistic level, people were dying and therefore regime change. That is that potentially, look, I'm even mitigating my own views, was reason for regime change. That was then, you could tell during the Iraq buildup, that was a difficult, it wasn't a clear-cut statement. In other words, are, do you really believe in that enough to go to war where arguably many more people will and, of course, did die? And arguably the piece of information which certainly was used by many people to push things over the edge was weapons of mass destruction. The Iraqis had weapons of mass destruction and potentially were going to use them. And so I think for some people, potentially myself included, that was sort of, you build on the group thing and you say, well, I always thought he was a bad guy. Now that's been mm. proved. Now we can go on. Well, now I think there's a fascinating element to this, which is, of course, Back in 2002, 2003, just prior to the invasion, of course, the logic of whether whether the you know, the Western world intervenes in Iraq was based around the connection between the Iraqi regime and al-Qaeda after the 2001 September the 11th attacks from the US. Um, uh, because, and this isn't a podcast about you know, international relations or law, but you can't just invade another country because you don't like the way they govern. So it's interesting that this was a, a conversation at the time about the Iraq relationship with Al-Qaeda made urgent by this threat of the use of weapons of mass destruction. And people may or may not remember the 45-minute the claim and the, the dossier around that and all the contention subsequently. For me, what's interesting is, firstly, we, we've talked a lot about psychology in this episode, and we haven't, up, up until this point, mentioned Cialdini's principles of influence. But I think these are, we're dancing around all of them. And one of those principles is urgency. One of them is social proof. One of them is being beholden to authority. The, we were talking about social proof. We were talking about urgency. We've got to make this decision sooner rather than later. And we were talking about the the authority of being of the information we were being told. And and I like you at the time. I read the I read the paper on the weapons of mass destruction that was published by the government. Um, I read it in full. I, I felt like that was something I needed to do as an aspiring military officer. And I was fully behind the idea of the war. I look back now and I absolutely understand where where that was flawed, why that was flawed, and where the system, and there's there's probably a whole podcast for us in how intelligence sometimes goes awry, um, didn't provide what I thought it did in terms of the certainty. More interesting for me is at the time, the majority of people when polled were behind the war. Now, that wasn't everybody. And of course, we've seen the largest 
peaceful demonstration in our lifetimes and perhaps ever was the anti-war march. So, so this was definitely not a everybody believed it, but the majority of people did. Now, when polled, not only did the majority of people agree that the war was perhaps uh, carried out on some dodgy infection and, and wasn't perhaps such a good idea, but when asked, they claimed that they were against the war at the time. And that shows a cognitive dissonance between how they felt at the time and the decisions they actually made and how they reflect on how they felt at the time and the decisions they made. And I think that gives us something in terms of how we get over these polarised and difficult issues. So in teams where, where the issue has become something contentious, where it has become a them and us, and that's whether that's sub-teams within your organisation or whether that's your relationship with uh, an external agency or an external team, or whether that's uh, how perhaps politics and social discussion is starting to bleed into your workspace and cause animosities and problems. The way to get around this is not to point out where people were wrong or to uh, try and correct people. The answer is to move the conversation along to what do we do about it now and how do we, and we're back to these kind of micro behaviours, how do we change the conversation from a this is unhelpful behaviour, stop it, or this is unhelpful ways of thinking, stop it, to let's discuss how this affects what we're trying to achieve. Um, and so I think there's a that that debate is yet to happen with Brexit in the in the UK. Um, but I think we are just starting to get to the point where the the raw argument of should we shouldn't we and then the raw argument of what does the post-brexit deal look like is far enough back that we are now just starting to be able to have conversations where we can say some people voted to leave some people voted to remain some people voted for a hard brexit some people voted for a soft brexit some people believed this some people believed that but but now where we currently are how do we move forward? What what do we want to do collectively to to make where we are now and where we want to get to work? And now we're back to strategy. I think that might be a good place to stop. I think we've danced around a couple of particularly sticky minefields. If you can have a sticky minefield, I don't know whether that works. Um, look, we we definitely haven't given a plethora of frameworks for people to follow. But I think this is really just you and I chewing on the complexities of some of these decisions. You know, I, th this idea that the bringing teams together and having this team identity can be astoundingly powerful, but that same, same team identity can be the architect of our own dis destruction if we're not careful. That decisions that that we have made in the past, I think Iraq being just the example for today, we we did not understand the information in the way that we should have done to come up with a good example. And that's really difficult. I mean, I'd like to think we're broadly sensitive to this and yet we still screw it up. 
we saw the 45 minute thing and said, well, that seems bad. That's a direct threat. When it turns out it was a cab driver who was being paid a large amount of money to tell lies. So it, I don't think we have any answers in this episode, but maybe that that really is the whole tenet of this podcast, which is even if we don't have any useful answers, actually it's our job as leaders and as managers to try to better understand this and try to work through it. Conversations with our teams, it turns out that's really important. Building trust so that people can say, I don't think that's true, is really important. Giving people skills and the time and the space to understand these things. The psychology of why are we why are we wired to do these destruct potentially destructive things? And you know, even just as simple as why polarization is a very bad idea, because even though you say, well, I'm far away from those people, polarization says, yeah, but every time you get a step further away from those people, I actually I'm digging myself into a bigger hole, which means I'm more likely to make mistakes. So I've I've even though we haven't come up with any miraculous resolution, I've I've very much enjoyed this one. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think if I can summarize kind of where I think we've got to, I would say um we've said before leadership is not a position that you are given. Everybody is a leader because leadership is about getting other people to do things. And we all, to a greater or lesser extent, have the opportunity to get other people to do things. At the same time, in this conversation, we sort of introduced the concept of followership. and All people are followers, including the boss, because you can either go along with what other people are getting people to do, other people's leadership, or you can stop and question it. And that comes back to this, the standard you walk past or the standard you accept. And if you don't question the small behaviours, these things compound and that's where the polarisation creeps in. And finally, I think we've introduced a, a concept of loyal dissent, which is the idea of creating the, the accepted norms of allowing people to question why we're doing certain things. So there's a, there's, a, there's a link between all of those things. But if you can create a, a culture where when somebody does something, somebody else is allowed to ask why, is allowed to introduce new information, is allowed to introduce new concerns, that might not result in a change in the decision. But it will certainly air problems, air concerns, uh, and allow that communication, but also it may well change the course of the decisions because what we're doing there is mitigating the potential for groupthink. Well, that is a good place for us to finish. All that remains is for me now to, once we've finished recording, talk to my wife about how we get the next party people on the dance floor, and I will surprise her by using Iraq and uh, Brexit as a basis for our strategic discussions for how we do that? There's only one solution to that, Chris, and that's you can't organise parties when I'm on a different continent. Well, I will be I will be the leader and you will be the first follower. 
I will and will play Love Shack because that generally gets me going on the dance floor in a in a very, very embarrassing way. Well, that sounds like an absolute deal. I know you're on your way back soon. So safe travel, sir. We'll see you back in sunny Oxfordshire very soon. Uh, but that wraps it up for today. Uh, all the usual stuff we say, if you found this vaguely interesting or amusing, or you've got other people that need to work out how to get people on the dance floor, please share this with your friends. We're on, at Battling With Biz on Twitter and Battling With Business, two S's at gmail.com. Uh, tell us how we're doing. Tell us what's interesting. Tell us what you'd like to talk about. But for now, uh, thank you very much from me. And it's goodbye from me. Cheerio.